Joining us for this episode is Esther Fortunoff Green, the president and CEO of Fortunoff Fine Jewelry. The name Fortunoff likely sounds familiar to many since it is the beloved retailer founded 100 years ago in Brooklyn, New York by Esther's grandparents, Max and Clara. In its time, Fortunoff was one of America's most successful privately held department stores with multiple locations attracting millions of shoppers. Private equity investors purchased a majority stake in the company in 2005 and quickly changed its operating philosophy. Unfortunately, several factors, including the 2008 financial crisis, led to bankruptcy. However, in 2009, members of the Fortunoff family reacquired the company's intellectual property, and the brand story continues. We'll discuss the company's history, discover what Esther calls the secret sauce behind Fortunoff's success, and how she keeps the brand relevant to a future generation of shoppers. Hi, Esther, and welcome to our podcast series. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the New York Institute of Technology for giving me the opportunity. It's wonderful to have you with us today. Let's talk a little bit about, first off, the Fortunoff name, obviously, in our region is very well recognized. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of Fortunoff, if you could. Sure. Fortunoff actually began in 19... 1922, so this year we're coming on the 100-year anniversary, and my grandparents, Max and Clara Fortunoff, wanted to create a business of their own and began with sort of pots and pans and housewares, a very, very small business in East New York, part of Brooklyn. So it was the Livonia Avenue market in Brooklyn. Luckily for them, their business survived the depression because everyone needed, you know, basics for the home and pots and pans and things like that. And it gradually grew into them opening a general store around 1940. And in 1950 or so, their three children entered the business. And that really began a period of great growth. Each of their three children began a new venture of different types of merchandise. And so it just kept growing as the the three children came into the business, and then they each brought in their spouse to the business. So there were always married couples, and there were men and women, and their expertise in what was needed in the home, obviously the women had a better idea helped the business to grow and expand. So there was, um, for example, an outdoor furniture store separately from the general housewares store. And then there became like a lamp store. And then there was a decorating store that had like carpets and small furniture. There was a jewelry section that my mother started when she joined the family business, when she married into the family. It ended up being in Brooklyn, under the elevated train, eight different small stores in a three-block radius that were all operating as Fortunoff, but had different family members running them. Now, from there, you consolidated the business, and, and obviously one of the larger stores in our region was here on Long Island, and then you opened, they opened a few more stores in New Jersey, I think, right? Yes. So the, all the Brooklyn stores consolidated and opened in 1964 in Westbury, mm-hmm. 
in the area near Roosevelt Racetrack. And that business had everything under one roof, and many of the employees from Brooklyn came to work there. And part of our secret sauce was having the same staff all the time. It wasn't like typical retail where, you know, people are hired and fired seasonally. The staff knew the product very well and got to bond with the customers. So the the store in Westbury was like a phenomenal success. People are always talking to me now about how, you know, there would be crowds in Westbury. And that phenomenal success led my family to also decide to expand to New Jersey and Manhattan in the 70s. Now, the business grew and your family owned the business up until the, I think it was the early 2000s, when a private equity firm came in, purchased the stores, and unfortunately ran into tough times. And at that point, they had the controlling interest in the company. I think it was the financial crisis in uh, 2008 that really undermined the retail environment and that caused the stores to close. That is true. But between the expansion to New Jersey And that time in 2005, a lot had changed. My generation, which is the third generation, became the main people who were running the company. But by then we had more than 2,000 employees in the states of New York and New Jersey, several mega stores, like super stores, you might say. And then there were just the jewelry and silver stores, and then there were outdoor furniture spin-off stores. The reason that private equity thought that they could make the business even better was because most of the family members were ready to retire, and here was a business that had something unusual in that combined seasonality of something like outdoor furniture, which is a summer business, with jewelry, which is often a a Christmas and Mother's Day kind of business. It had a very strong regional presence, and so the idea was that that could grow. Unfortunately, some of the techniques that they sought to use right at first, were really not part of the Fortunoff brand heritage. One of the things that had made Fortunoff so great, but also something that other retailers would change, would be the category killer aspect of our business, which meant huge, huge selections. Mm. So they wanted to streamline the number of suppliers. We wanted to give great pricing every day, and some of them believed more in the high-low philosophy. We kept employees for years and decades pouring a lot of effort into our employees' ability to grow, grow in management, but also to do product training, and we sent people to the GIA to learn about jewelry. And so a core value of Fortunoff, which had been that employees will stay and maybe get flex time opportunities. We had very liberal policies in terms of someone being able to try a different area. Certainly, we promoted from within. So 
the private equity people didn't really understand that secret sauce, for want of a better word, and wanted to change the way we bought product. They changed the way we scheduled people. That coupled with the financial downturn and you know the changes in 2008 led the company to declare bankruptcy. You and other family members obviously decided to say, look, you know, fortune off, the brand still had value. So from what I understand, you took the brand and reestablished, and you used an interesting word, trust. And I think that's so important, especially in today's environment, that we look for companies whose values align with ours. So tell us about the journey you took once you took the brand back and then establishing Fortune Off Fine Jewelry. Sure. So we knew that there were literally millions of customers in the tri-state area who loved Fortune Off and would want to continue buying from us. The family group chose the two areas that were probably the most specialized in a sense to reopen. So we bought back our intellectual property and our name and customer lists and proprietary designs and reopened Fortune Off Backyard Store, which was in a partnership with a company out of Texas called the Chair King, and relaunched FortuneOffJewelry.com in 2010, which was me and my brother David, and that was an online-only solution for that time. That did seem to make the most sense because the economy was still reeling and the rise of e-commerce and the competition from e-commerce was a big factor in the jewelry world. It was just starting to have the effect of all of a sudden mom and pop stores were losing business to the internet. And so we had always had an e-commerce business. We started very early, much earlier maybe than some other people, certainly in the jewelry space. And we were lucky enough to have loyal customers who, even though they couldn't touch and feel the merchandise, were willing to shop with us. Of course, they knew that we had excellent customer service policies. We always gave refunds instead of store credit. And that's different than a lot of other jewelers, certainly at that time, and I think even now, who will not give you your money back. They'll let you buy something else, but you never get your money back. And that was never our philosophy. So that policy on the internet helped make that business do pretty well. And we had you know, several thousand products online by Christmas of 2010. And the backyard stores started to create outdoor furniture locations in the tri-state area, but also branched out to some locations that they hadn't been, like in Pennsylvania and Delaware and Connecticut. And that proved quite successful, and that continues to grow. You had a well-defined brand story in Fortune Off, and customers were looking for value, but also prestige, right? Mm-hmm, yes. And so you developed a signature style over the years. And to what extent have you been able to stay relevant 
and provide that type of value to more contemporary consumers, for the millennials and now Gen Z. How are you going to keep the brand going into the future? Yes, it was a prestige line to some extent, but one of the things that were always important to us is to have something for everyone to some extent. And so we weren't the kind of jewelry store where people felt intimidated or that they couldn't find something that was relevant to them. It's certainly not one-stop shopping for everything in jewelry, but it has some good entry points for even, you know, teens and millennials, certainly. Some of the things that they really care about, which I was always very tuned into, was working with sustainable brands when I possibly can, always buying from smaller local companies if possible. I always concentrated on women-owned businesses and female designers and always promoted my designers so that it helped them as in addition to helping us and worked with community organizations so that we would do a contest and come up with a, a design of jewelry that could then have proceeds donated to a breast cancer charity or a domestic violence charity. So the kind of cause marketing, which is very popular now, is really something I've been doing for a very long time. Right. Right. So the pandemic actually impacted your your storefront, I would assume. It certainly did. I mean, we had never been closed more than two days in a row, uh-huh. like ever. And then, you know, we had to be shut down because it certainly wasn't an essential business. And I did reopen as soon as we were allowed to, and we had drive-by pickup, we delivered to people's cars, and used all of the possible tools to make people feel comfortable, and also to serve the customers in the way that they wanted to be. So in certain cases, people asked to come in before hours or after hours, Then I have to say that toward fall of 2020, The people who were shopping, they had a mission. They knew that they wanted to come in, they could look around, but they sort of had pre-shopped on the web. They did their research, they found what they wanted, and then came into the store. So that the visit to the store was the final step, but it certainly wasn't the extent of the shopping. And I would imagine probably more than most businesses, the, the jewelry business is all about, you know, the trust. It's all about value. It's all about standing behind the product. And when I hear things like offering a full refund and the way you're merging your core values with essentially the brand that people can respect, then typically you'll be able then to stay relevant across almost any generation. I do think so. I mean, trust is you know, the most important thing in jewelry in general. And certainly customers can trust us that we are delivering what we say that we are. But the value is both the combination of better prices than many of our competitors, but also better quality. I would say that the combination of knowing that it's good to begin with, but that if something was wrong, we 
you know, bend over backwards to make sure it's right is what sort of cements that Fortunoff brand promise. It's quite a legacy when you think back that you're coming up to having a brand that's been in business for a century. It's rare in in any economy that brands typically last that long, but it comes down to sticking to those core values and, and giving the consumers what they're looking for. I have a couple of questions for you. Are there lessons or insights you'd like to share with the next generation of entrepreneurs? Uh, thank you for giving me that opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I believe that being a great employer and being the kind of employer where you care about the people that you've hired and you give them not only benefits that they deserve, but also give them opportunities to grow and to expand in their roles and educate themselves, you know, is really a big part of having a company that can last because your employees are the people who are dealing with your customers often. And if they are enthused and knowledgeable and, you know, you set the right tone, that just makes everything work a lot better. Well, one of the things you mentioned early on, and I like the way you phrased it, you looked at your employees as the secret sauce that they brought not only the relationships that they established with the customers, it was knowledge, it was expertise. It was all the things that if you're a consumer, those are the things that you look for no matter what you buy. Yes. I mean, of course, you know, not every business really has the ability to give their employees the path forward, depending on what kind of business it is. But one thing that they could also do, which is something that Fortunoff did way back, and I always admired it, is we offered tuition reimbursement so that our employees could actually go to college part-time while they were working. And it didn't necessarily benefit their job that they had at the time, but it just maybe made them a more well-rounded person or a happier person. And, you know, really treating your employee like family and just saying, okay, you know, this could be a cool thing for you to learn and do. I think that really helped us because we did have such well-rounded people working. I have one last question for you, Esther. What one word describes who you are? (laughs) I guess that's a good question. Resilient, possibly, or maybe determined. A little bit of both. There's nothing wrong with that. That, Yeah, a little bit of both. Yeah. You know, and resilience, often a topic we talk about with entrepreneurs, because there are going to be those days where, you know, you just want to give up, but it's that resilience is what carries you through. And I, I guess to some extent, it's the passion for the business. And certainly in speaking with you today, I get a sense that you're extremely passionate about what you do. Yes, I am extremely passionate both about just the family business aspect and the history of the family, but also I'm passionate about the jewelry business because it's something that I love and it's also something that basically makes people feel good. It's something meaningful for people to wear and something that they remember from generation to generation. So I'm incredibly blessed to have really warm parts of the jewelry business that comes into my life all the time. And so that's a very nice thing. So it's nice to be passionate about that. Thank you so much for joining us today. I truly appreciate you being on our podcast. 
Thank you. And to the New York Institute of Technology, I, I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. As we heard, Esther continues to follow the essential tenets of the century-old Fortune-Off brand. One, build trust. Demonstrate that you stand behind what you sell. As an example, offering a full refund instead of a store credit, which is rare in the jewelry business. Two, focus on high quality and value. Three, have a knowledgeable team that is committed to extraordinary customer service. Four, live your values. Live your values through actions like promoting women-owned businesses and jewelry designers. Have sustainable sourcing and supporting local charities. These efforts resonate with all customers, but especially with younger consumers. So what was the secret sauce, the crucial element that cemented the customer relationship? Esther points to their employees. Unlike many retailers of the era, Fortuneoff invested in their workforce, offering benefits like tuition reimbursement and giving them opportunities to grow and expand in their roles and educate themselves. As she said, if the people dealing with your customers are enthused and knowledgeable, you set the right tone that makes everything else work a lot better. When asked for one word that describes who she is, resilient first came to mind. As we've heard from others, resilience is an essential characteristic of what makes a successful entrepreneur. It is the ability to recover, the elasticity to bounce back and not succumb to the travails of running a business. Thanks to Esther for sharing her experiences and valuable insights. This podcast is executive produced by John Rebecki and New York Institute of Technology in conjunction with the School of Management and the Office of Strategic Communications and External Affairs. The Director of Professional Enrichment and producer of this podcast is Deborah Cohn. Our marketing and social media strategist is Petra Shantaraga. Our audio editor and mixer is Brian Falk from Abacus Entertainment. Special thanks to Constance Talatia and Paulina Lamanier for all their support. Until next time.